0: Come in through, the, uh, through the, the songs and you missed the first welcome. We want to issue a great warm welcome to everybody who is here tonight, especially visitors. You're our guests and so we're glad that you're here. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian yet, we're just glad you're among us and you get to be here as we start a new series which we will get to in just a moment. While you're waiting, 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter to be in. So start flicking there now and be there in your Bible so you can have it open in front of yourselves. Before we get there, I just want to announce that we are in week eight, uh, which means we have two more weeks of fellowship group. Nope. You're supposed to go, oh. (sighs) Get over it. That's fine. We'll pick it up next week and uh, next term, and it'll be great. But did you hear all those emotions? If you're not in a fellowship group yet, that's what you're missing out on. They love each other uncoerced. They, they, They pine for presents and stuff like that. You guys let me down. Uh, anyway, but it's a great place to be. Get there, encourage one another. Um, if you don't know which one to get along to, now's a great time to jump in uh, so that you're ready to go for the next term. Um, there's three that meet all around the place, and in the next couple of weeks, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the sort of monthly thing that I do, so I'm going to visit each of them over the next two weeks and do a teaching series on whatever the sort of leader and, or, and the group have decided would be helpful. Um, so uh, get your most controversial, most helpful, most evangelistic topics, whatever, and please remember, those fellowship groups are as much as they are a saint training blessing edifying time they are also an outpost to the kingdom where we want to be inviting our friends who might not want to come to church and have me yell at them and have people sing around them whatever. that's that's too much for them. at least bring them to fellowship groups where they can hear the gospel meet you guys the friendly ones before you bring them here and meet all the weird ones uh, so please, please be doing that. And uh, also, we have youth group on Friday night where the, uh, the teenagers of this church and of our sort of uh, community come in and they hear the word preached and they uh, get together and they, they uh, pray with the leaders and, and they're being encouraged in that way. So be praying for that ministry. That's a great evangelistic ministry. Um, be praying for the leaders. They always need new leaders if you would feel inclined to serve in that way. Um, and they uh, are doing great work that needs uh, sustaining by the Holy Spirit. Also on Friday nights, we meet in the city to do some evangelism at about 7.30. We had a great team out last week, and uh, it, was, it was a good time. Um, we uh, got hundreds of tracks out, lots of good conversations were had. And uh, so I encourage you, if, if you've never done that before, you want to give it a try, or you've, you've done that in your past, please come out. We all do it slightly differently, and uh, God is just honored as his gospel goes out, and many conversations are had to honor his son. Uh, so, invite you there as well. And uh, another exciting thing, but this, one's, this one, you're going to have to wait for this one. Uh, this is September 18th. What do we have on September 18th? There we go. The excited crowd. Yeah, stand Firm Conference, right? This year, we have sort of changed, uh, not changed much, but we've thrown a theme on it. It's, it's Stand Firm Against Wild Beasts. We see in this chapter that we're going to be preaching from later, in verse 31, Paul says that because of the resurrection of Jesus, Paul did crazy things like go and fight wild animals in Ephesus, and some commentators think that that was just uh, symbolic for false teaching. I think he actually wrestled lions and came out victorious in the name of Jesus uh, for the gospel. That's what he he did, but we're symbolizing it for our conference because we can't afford lion fights, and what we're we're meaning is as Christians, as apologists, as evangelists, as faithful soldiers of Christ, we want to be those who lovingly for those around us and for the sake of the glory of God, we want to take on and approach and talk about and challenge the ideologies and idols of our day, and uh, equip and teach other uh, other Christians and ourselves. Get um, uh, equipped on how to answer and and uh, uh, preach the gospel into the culture that believes things like the uh, you know L G B T topic, the uh, 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 gender ideology topics, the uh, uh, lack of exclusivity around the gospel, and can the Bible be trusted and critical race theory, and all that sort of stuff. We want to approach it and attack it in a way that's helpful. So that's going to be September 18th during the day. And on the Friday night, this is the last week of school term three, and on the Friday night, instead of youth group, we're actually going to have a publicly open, uh, free-to-anybody-to-come debate between myself and an atheist guy from the Brisbane Atheist Society on the topic of, is belief in the Christian scriptures logical? And he assures me that that is a that is a that's a that's a cheated question on his behalf. Like that, that no Christian can actually answer that, even begin to answer that at all. You can't logic uh, use logic for faith. And I was man, you have got to meet the people in our church. Every one of them would take you down on that. But I get the pleasure. You get to come and throw. I got told by one of the uh, crew this morning they'll they'll come with rotten fruit to throw at either one of us when we make a bad point. So just come have fun, it'll be a rowdy night, hopefully really, really helpful, uh, gearing up for the the day afterwards, which will be a paid event. It'll be uh, 20, now I'm just bleeding information. I gotta remember which parts we're keeping secret. 20 bucks if you're getting the early, early bird ticket, and 30 bucks if you're after that, there will be free resources for everybody that comes, Lord willing, because we have been proudly sponsored by Ligonier Ministries from America, if you know of them. They're a great ministry to uh, be learning from in terms of Reformed Theology. They've decided to sponsor us for the conference, so that's exciting. And then we've got a guest speaker coming over the screen, which almost all of you will know the person's name and ministry and probably watched hundreds of hours of their YouTube stuff, and he's going to be joining us and stay tuned for the promo material to find out who it is. But for now, we're going to jump straight into the uh, the ser- tithes and offerings. James will never let me forget that one. Bless him. So I'm, I'm going to pray over the tithes and offerings. Those who have physical stuff to give can give, and we'll jump into the word of God. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you because you have richly blessed us in Jesus. You have not just blessed us in him, but through him given us the Holy Spirit and one another, and the Word of God, and on top of all of that, as if it wasn't enough, you give us what we need to eat, to live, to drive, to uh, have others. You know, we, we have so many blessings from you, Lord, and, and it's our joy, as the Word of God would um, direct us, to take a portion of that and give the first fruits to our good Lord and King, to be used in explicit ministry for his sake, and then just keep the rest that you graciously uh, give to us in order to uh, 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 supply and support ourselves. We pray, Lord, that uh, the money that we give would be given in generosity so that we we will be able to support Blake and Silpy, our missionaries. And Lord, of course, also that we would be able to support the needy in our church and the gospel needs of the Great Commission as we power forwards. Lord, we thank you for all that you give and all that you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Oh, you came in a bit early there. I did give you an awkward pause. But anyway, hey, look, there's uh, things turned from nice stories, to good news when you see how they connect to you. Have I told you that some English dude signed a document once, and some young teenagers jumped out onto a beach once, and a Jewish guy woke up once. If I give you those three pieces of random information, they are just, I mean, not even good stories. They're just stories, they're just facts, historical facts, that become immediate and overwhelmingly good news when you see how they connect to you. Because the English dude who signed a, a contract was the King of England signing the Magna Carta, which paved the way for human freedoms and political freedoms going forward. That's why we have really the West as we have it today politically. Thank the Lord for that signed document. If I was to say that some young dudes just jumped out on a beach one day, and those guys were the Allied forces arriving at Normandy on June 6, 1944, to start pushing back the Nazis from Europe so that they can end World War II, and we don't speak Nazi German today, that's a good thing. That becomes a piece of story and history to become a piece of good news for you when you see how it connects to you. And if I say that a Jewish dude woke up one Sunday morning, that's a nice piece of historical fact if it's true. But if I tell you that that guy was the one who went before the Father into the holy place of heaven to offer his blood as a sacrifice and a, and a substitute for our sins, and that in him waking up, That was the world holding bated breath to see if the sin was paid for. And so when that Jewish guy woke up, his name is actually Jesus, and it wasn't waking, it was resurrecting. When we see how that connects to us, that guy getting up on Sunday morning became the best news in history. Amen? And as we start going into 1 Corinthians 15, we need to be uh, excited as we see the resurrection not just explained and not just applied, but preached by the Apostle Paul 1st Corinthians 15 this is a this is a series that we're going to embark on I know we don't do series we just preach through books of the Bible yes but I'm using this as a series 1 Corinthians chapter 15 the greatest chapter in this book Paul is going to explode in explanation of Old Testament scriptures to show how Jesus dying and rising is the key to all of God's purposes promises and prophecies and it's very, very important to see uh, uh, that, that, as in Paul's example here, he does not start by philosophically explaining. He does not start by giving historical evidences and explanations. He starts by preaching. The gospel, number one, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, number one, Paul doesn't come in and try and convince people. He just slams out of the gate to preach. The gospel. That's the first thing we have to be doing with the gospel. That's the first thing Paul does with the gospel. That is what the church has been given the gospel to do. Preach it loudly to souls that need to hear it and be saved. And we we say this because the Corinthians had for some reason they'd gotten shady on the resurrection of human beings. It seems like no one was questioning the resurrection of Jesus. But it was leading there and Paul could see with his apostolic pastoral mind that if they go down this track long enough theologically, they're going to arrive at the position of confirming and and affirming that Jesus did not rise from the dead. There was sort of two parties that that maybe uh, uh, influenced the Corinthian view that at the end of the world we don't rise bodily, we just sort of go up in in, uh, disembodied spirits and that's heaven. Paul's going to, in the coming weeks, preach against that with all of the apostolic ferocity that he can. But the two schools of thought that were probably informing that kind of belief was maybe the Jewish Sadducees, who we see come up time and again in the Gospels, because they did not believe in supernatural events, and they believed only in the first five books of the Old Testament. They were like theological liberals today. They, they, don't, they didn't really believe in many of the miracles or much of the word of God, and they, did, they just believed that this life is all that there is. Maybe some of those Jews were informing and uh, uh, misinforming the Corinthian church. But probably more likely is that the Greek understanding, following from Plato's philosophy in Greece, was that the... Because Corinth was a Roman Greek city, uh, uh, the, the, what was likely being influenced was that they had adopted Plato's view, which is that the soul is immortal... Because the soul is that spark and light of the divine, of the gods, of the good, of the righteous. But the body was created, the world, the physical world was created by a God that hates us, an evil God. And so final restoration, final salvation is that there is a promise that one day your body will break down and your soul will go free and will live in a disembodied heaven forevermore or whatever it would look like. One of those teachings had gotten into the Corinthian church and started to confuse them such to the point that the people reporting to Paul what was going on in the church of Corinth brought this up with them. They have a faulty, imperfect uh, uh, view of the resurrection, both of Jesus and his church. And so Paul starts to get fired up and start preaching about the resurrection as he writes. I wouldn't have wanted to be the scribe at this point who's writing down the book of Uh, corinthians for him his hand would have been on fire it would have been insane at the pace that paul goes now my ipad is completely stuffing up at the moment and not responding so pray for that amen let's go let's see if she works no no faith ye of little faith I'll have to preach off my phone. I can hardly see this. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read the first four verses. This is a big chapter. We're going to take seven sermons to go through all of it. And uh, there is going to be uh, uh, available on our website at some point, maybe through the app. I don't know how it all works yet. We're going to be developing study guides for each sermon so that afterwards, either, you know, some of you are teachers and you have opportunities to do Bible studies at school. Some of you are youth group leaders and have opportunities to do midweek stuff with the kids. Some of you just have non-Christian friends that you want to the, uh, lead to Jesus Christ. Some of you are fellowship group leaders, so that might be helpful. We're producing a study guide. I've produced the first one for this sermon. It will be available during the week, and it's just going to be a helpful breakdown in ways that are good for group discussion and study. So keep an eye out for that, uh, because we want this teaching on this Uh, passage of of powerful scripture to be long-lasting and helpful. So, let's read chapter 15, verses 1 through to 4. That's what we're going to uh, uh, be expounding tonight. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter uh, verse 1, pardon me. Paul says this, Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, in accordance with the scriptures. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. We're going to look at what we do to the gospel, what the gospel does to us, and then what the gospel is. Four verses, hopefully a lot of helpful content from us in, from the word of God. First of all, you're going to look here. Paul says, I remind you brothers of the gospel I preach to you. His topic is the gospel. That's why we're looking at what we do to it, what it does to us, and what it is It is all about the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 is a gospel passage. I love it. It's about the gospel. And we see, number one, the first thing that we do to the gospel, we touched on this, is it is preached. What Christians must do with the gospel is preach it. This is what Jesus did. Following John the Baptist, which is what John the Baptist did after all the prophets of the Old Testament, which is what they did in prophecy and promise, looking forwards. Then this is what Jesus did in his life. This is what James went and did. Peter went and did. Paul went and did. Whether he was in Antioch or then Jerusalem and then Galatia and Ephesus and Crete and Corinth and Athens and Thessalonica and Philippi, wherever he went, what the book of Acts tells us is that he went about preaching. When he says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, what that means immediately to him is that therefore I spoke loudly, clearly, emphatically, boldly to anyone, to everyone, though I got killed once, I came back, I got beaten five times, I got whipped times, I I was destroyed in the flesh for the sake of making known the gospel of God. Number one, every church that claims to be a church built on the foundation of the apostolic teaching of the gospel needs to be a proclaiming church if we're a gospel church we must be a preaching church evangelistically in your workplaces to your family in your homes here when you come always expect to hear the gospel of jesus christ kids church always happens youth group always happens evangelism always happens it's about getting the gospel out or we are found faithless Paul was not found faithless. He's reminding them what he's already told them back when he came to them. And you can read this in Acts chapter 18. It's actually very helpful. If you go through the book of Acts, it's been said one out of every four verses is a sermon or a portion of a sermon. A quarter of the whole book, you're going to find yourself in a sermon. You open it up, you swing somewhere, put your finger down. 25% of the time, it's going to be in a sermon. That's what the Holy Spirit does in a people who have been saved by the gospel. And if you go to Acts chapter 18, that's when Paul came to Corinth and started preaching. And it uses very uh, uh, many helpful terminology, uh, 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 words, in order to show us what preaching looks like. In the book of uh, Acts chapter 18, words are used like reasoning, testifying, persuading, convincing, and proclaiming. That's what preaching is is. It's doing all of those things. Reasoning, uh, convincing, persuading, testifying, proclaiming. That's Paul in the book of Acts chapter 18. And he said, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17, the very beginning of this book, he reminded them what he did. And he said, Christ did not send me to be a baptizer, but to preach the gospel. That was his ministry. The gospel must be Preached. Secondly, he says, right there, he says, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received. This is the most important thing. If you're a hearer of the gospel, you have to recognize immediately that's not enough. It's not enough to hear the gospel. It's not enough to go to a church that preaches the gospel. It's not enough to have friends that know the gospel. It's not enough to have parents who tell you the gospel. You yourself, a sinner condemned to hell, You yourself with a nature that is opposed to God and all that is righteous. You yourself need to hear and then receive the gospel. This is language in the Greek of receiving, which is to take something from somebody so that you are now carrying it. Has the gospel become your gospel? Is it good news for you because you've received it? Other languages or pictures of this in the Bible is eating it. Jesus says, take my flesh and eat it. It's good news. We see this in uh, in Ezekiel. He's commanded to take the word of God and eat it. Other languages is, is clothing. Have you taken the gospel and clothed yourself in Christ for your salvation, or is it something that hangs in the cupboard and you know about it and that's about it? Other languages is is, uh, uh, is eating, is being clothed in it, or is holding on to it. Have you received, held tightly? the word of God that climaxes in the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Have you believed with saving faith and been saved? That's what Paul says. I preached it. You received it. And, of course, we see the, trans, uh, the, 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 the uh, converse going on in those who are not believing it. The, the error is that they're not receiving. We, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the very next verse from what we quoted earlier, chapter Sorry, verse 18. He says, The word of the cross, it's the gospel, is folly, meaning foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. What's the difference between the gospel going out and you just going further towards damnation in your sins? And somebody else who the gospel is going out and they are coming closer to salvation or awaiting the day of of being received into heaven. What's the difference between those two people? Ultimately, God's election. Ultimately, regeneration. But but what in the lived experience of those people makes the difference? Somebody has either received or rejected the gospel. And make no mistake, whenever the gospel is preached, one of those two things is happening. You are either receiving it or you are actively suppressing and rejecting it and God sees no neutrality. I want non-believers tonight to hear this, that as the gospel goes out, don't think that's interesting, deal with it later, maybe that's right, these guys sound passionate about it, that's cool. Rather think, I must either fully receive it or throw it to the side in rejection. That's the only two options. That's how God considers it. So please, would you receive the gospel for your soul's salvation? That's what uh, Paul is doing. We have to realize here that they're not actively suppressing or denying the resurrection of christ and the gospel they're just believing some things that are not uh congruent with good sound gospel theology so this sermon what paul is doing is reiterating the foundations of the gospel so that in the coming weeks he can show how they're inconsistent in their beliefs with the foundations So Paul's not against these guys. He's not on a tirade against false teachers. He's glorying with them in the gospel because he's saying, which you received. He's confident about their willing reception of the gospel. So the three things we do with the gospel is, one, preach it. Secondly, we must ourselves receive it. And thirdly, we must stand in it. Paul says there, the gospel in which you stand. The gospel is not a one-time fix for life. It is not like a permanent vaccine that you receive, which you can remember having at some point, and therefore you must now be immune. The gospel is something that if you move aside from it, it no longer saves you. It, it, it's the, the, the picture of, of, of safety, but that doesn't leave room for carelessness. Imagine yourself on a, on a firm, strong, solid walkway. One of those idiotic things designed by a teenage guy who got way too much money in engineering degree. And he designs one of those huge glass-floored walkways out over the Grand Canyon or over the, the Himalayas, something like that. And people go out there and they, and they walk them and, they, and they're scared. And, they, and, and you could reassure them by saying, this is a good foundation. You're actually safe. You don't need to be worried. And then in their excitement and glee, they say, I'm safe, that's great, whip out a trampoline and start jumping around, swinging off the rails. You you would immediately stop them and tell them, you've mistaken safety for being able to be careless. There is a precipice beneath you. You will die if you fall. What I mean by safety is, as long as your feet are planted here, you are safe. The gospel is something that you cannot simply remember believing at a time, but every day that you breathe, you must be still standing on its foundations. If it is something that is away from you, it no longer has its saving benefits for you. We must continue to stand on the gospel. It is a foundation. In other words, Paul is telling us to be those who stand on the foundation of the gospel We are those who new teaching comes in and it's checked and tested by the foundations. If it doesn't fit, it doesn't go on the building. We are those who are careful because we're not naive thinking that everybody who holds a Bible probably has my best interest at heart. No, even in the pages of the New Testament, there are wolves rising up who are money hungry, who just love abusing people, who are inspired by Satan and filled with demons, or who love the the, the falsehood and hate the truth. All sorts of things can inspire it, but the reality is there is error that is always attacking the Christian church. And so you cannot go back and recheck and and test yourself against the foundations of the gospel enough. We must constantly be doing it. Are you standing now on the foundation of the gospel? It is our only firm foundation. Paul says so. He preaches it, we must also preach it. The Corinthians received it, we must also receive it. They stood on it, we must also be standing on it. And then secondly, in verse 2, we start seeing what the gospel does to us. And it's only one thing. What we do to the gospel is all of those things. What the gospel does to us is simply one thing. He says it there in verse 2. He says, and by which you are being saved. Saved. The gospel saves sinners. And there's an assumption there, isn't it? If, if you're told you need to be saved, it comes with the assumption there's some kind of enemy, there's some kind of downfall, there's some kind of coming judgment, there's some kind of horrible news to which you, from which sorry, you need to be saved, doesn't it? And, and, and the gospel is not a blank check. The gospel is not God will save you from filling your worst fear if you trust in Jesus, if you come to him, if you become a churchgoer. You don't get to just fill that in with, well, I am most afraid of job insecurity or I am most afraid of sickness or I am most afraid of being a failure or I'm most afraid of being rejected. I'm most afraid of not having community. God doesn't give us a blank check. He says very clearly, you are saved from himself because God has promised to judge sin and he doesn't break his promises. And so God will... Either judge your sin in your eternal death. You'll you'll start having a taste of that through those things. Suffering, sickness, pain, neglect, rejection on earth. Yes, but the coming judgment is far worse and it is eternal. That is the payment of sin. The only other option is that Jesus would take your payment for you. That he has taken your sins and paid the price that they Deserve. God will judge sin. You either pay for it or Jesus has paid for it all. The gospel saves us from hell. The gospel saves us from the God who punishes in hell. But of course he says a little uh, uh, condition here, doesn't he? This universal message of the gospel, which meets the universal need of human sin and condemnation before God, the one true living God, this gospel has a condition, which he says, (coughs) down here, he says, in which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. It's possible to believe in vain. Or what we said before, it's possible to take a stand upon the gospel and then move beyond it. It's, It's possible to stand on the foundation and then move off of it. So what Paul is saying is not, and we we know this, he's not saying the gospel is is kind of an on-again, off-again sort of deal. Sometimes you can be in it and it's great, but the next couple of days, depending on your sin, depending on your prayer life, depending on your weakness, depending on other people around you, depending on your conscience, you might just be out of it. You might just find yourself sort of callous a little bit and, oops, Jesus is no longer your savior. You're actually back in line to go to condemned hell forever. No, no, no. Christians who are saved are not just... On a list which you might be removed off of you're engrafted into christ you are made a new person you 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 are coming to such a mystical union with christ so that god the father delights in you hear this as much as he delights in his son as much as he delights in his son so he delights in you and therefore promises to hold you jesus then says again I hold you and the Father holds you as well, where one, nothing can snatch you out of our hands. That's the eternal promise. But then there's the temporary warning, which is that if you think you're in that camp, but you think you're free to move on and off of the beliefs of the gospel that was preached to you and by which you were saved, then you may be one of those who is actually not in Christ's hand, not in the Father's hand, not reborn, not adopted, not justified, not in Christ. It's possible, therefore, to have believed the facts of the gospel, yet never truly have repented of sin, never truly to have believed it all the way to the foundations. And therefore, Paul says, people can drift off and manifest that they never were truly saved. He doesn't want that to be the Corinthians. And so he says this saving gospel only saves those who truly long-lastingly believe. And so his wording is, the gospel by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, hold securely to it, not letting go, unless you believe in vain. Charles Spurgeon tells a story. He says of the Niagara Falls, there was... Two men going along on a boat uh, uh, to get a good view of, of the falls. and to, Maybe they're doing a charter job, we, we don't know. And, and a great torrent came up and a wind came and it toppled their boat, smashing it to pieces. And these two men were in the water, cascading towards the waterfall of Niagara. Instant death. And, and as they're floating, no one could 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 help them by swimming out to them. That would put themselves in harm's way. Nothing could be done by them. They were in the water and, and plummeting to their death very soon. But, but somebody had a rope on, on land and was able to throw it out to them in front of them. So that when they floated along, each of them was able to hold fast to this rope. And yet... A couple of minutes would go past as they're being dragged against the torrent and this little rope looked as if it might just snap. And, and if your life is, is dangling by your grip on this little rope, you start questioning things very quickly. And, and one, of them, one of them held fast and the other being worried at the size of this rope and, and how little it was and it's starting to creak and starting to maybe crack. I'm worried, will it be able to get me there? He, he let go and he held fast to a much larger, larger, much more, much more robust, much stronger piece of instrument, which was a log. He grasped that log, which was thicker than the rope, which was stronger than the rope, which could take more weight than the rope, and he held it. But the rope was attached to land. The log was floating in the water. And so one man who had the belief in something he could not entirely reason would hold him, he was saved. And the one who grasped to something else, being distracted, thinking that, that something else could hold him, he plummeted over the edge and died. And Spurgeon makes the spiritual connection. Saying you may not be able to hold in your hands and, 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 and remember yourself personally all of the righteousness of Jesus. You may not be able to touch him and put your hands in his holes like the first disciples could. That may not be you. Maybe there's a lot more faith to believe in Jesus. And over here, foolishly you think, is the great tower of your own self-righteousness. The great tower of philosophical, interesting thoughts and, and, and impressive ways of thinking that the culture has brought about and critical uh, 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 literary uh, ways have, have brought about different theories. And, and these guys over here have come up with different theories. It just looks a lot more robust But to to leave the faith of Jesus Christ and to grasp onto something else that just looks more impressive is to grasp onto something that itself is sinking and causing your death. It is not the rope that saved. It was what it was attached to. It is not your faith that saves. It is what it attaches you to, which is Jesus Christ. And so Paul is warning them that even though I'm sure you received the gospel, I've heard you repeat the gospel, I know you preach the gospel, but hold fast, grab onto nothing else, test everything against the gospel, hold fast, lest you have believed in vain. That man falling down the waterfall achieved nothing by saying to gravity, but I grabbed the rope. He grabbed the rope and he let go of the rope. Paul doesn't want the same thing. But I need to answer this question. What does Paul mean when he says that the gospel is that by which you are being saved? That starts getting our Catholic friends excited, makes us reform guys a little bit worried. Being saved? No, Paul, error. You mean we were saved. There's not ongoing salvation, it's one. Faith, believe, justified, right? The Catholics want to say there's a process of being called into the righteousness. There's a process of being forgiven throughout your life. And if you don't make it, you go to purgatory, burn off some of that sinful calories, and then you go to heaven. Well, what's Paul meaning when he says, Christians, you believe the gospel and you're still being saved? What he's uh, speaking to is is the reality of the different tenses or, or, or states of sin in the life of a human being. Firstly, there is the sense in which the gospel saved us. One time for all time, finished work. That was when you first believed the penalty of sin was completely removed from you. You never have to go to hell. It's not hung over you as a threat. God has no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Completely done. Saved, past tense. That's justification. There's a sense though ongoingly that we must continually be saved from the presence and the power of sin so this is called sanctification the process by which we become strengthened against sin and strengthened to obedience the process of mortification the puritans would say which is killing killing sin and vivification coming to life towards righteousness the two parts of sanctification Dying to sin, being made alive to righteousness. That's that's being saved. We are being saved by the power from the power of sin. Then thirdly, there is the, the, the fact that we are saved future from the presence of sin. That's glorification. Jesus comes back, which we'll read in the rest of this chapter. He appears, resurrects us up out of the ground with a cry of his own voice and takes us to be with him forever. There's no more disease, no more tears, no more more pain and no more death. That's what's coming. That's glorification. Now what Paul is meaning here is that while the gospel saved you and maybe he's using the ongoing sense to say it's continually saving more people. And the Corinthian church is growing. So it's saving you there in Corinth. But also maybe part of the tense is that he's meaning sanctification. That the gospel is not something you start the Christian life with and then you better beat yourself with law and study and hard work that is all on your shoulders if you want to get more holy. But rather it's the gospel. Every day what we need, the bread And butter of Christianity is the remembering that Jesus died for my sins and rose on the third day. That's the power of all of the Christian life, not just conversion. That's what Paul's saying. Three tenses of salvation because there are three different ways that sin permeates us. And now we get to the exciting part. Now we get a little bit loud. Sorry for being so quiet for so long. Now we're into verse 3. This is what Paul says. Now he's talking not just about what we do to the gospel or what it does to us, but what the gospel is. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is what the gospel is. It is of first importance. There is nothing to any individual, whether they know what the gospel is or not, there is nothing more important than the good news of Jesus Christ for salvation. That's why we have to get it out to people. That's why we have to press it on our friends and invite our loved ones. That's why we need to be reminded ourselves constantly, am I living, am I thinking, does it look like I actually believe that the most important thing in my life is the gospel? Or is it my income? Is it my popularity? Or is it the career? Or is it the investments? Or is it my my legacy? Is it something to do with me? Or or maybe social needs and, and churches get caught on this. There's lots of good stuff the church can do and should do. None of them are first importance except for believing and proclaiming that Jesus died for sinners and rose again. First importance. Is it first in your thinking? Is it first in your affections? Primary? the most the strongest thing you feel about is that Jesus died for you and rose again and is it primary in your actions in your schedule there's everything that takes time that can never be redeemed again that is used up and gone for eternity and we give an account on the last day there's everything you put on your schedule go through the prism of Jesus died for sinners does it look like I'm making this decision in light of that It's of first importance. Nothing else even compares. And then he says that the gospel is received. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And I hear you. Very good question. You're saying we've already covered the received part. Please don't do this again. But this is a received in a different sense. Firstly, he was saying the, back in verse 1, that the hearers need to receive and believe on the gospel. Now he's talking about the fact that the gospel was received, not created by humans. He's saying that the gospel that you have, you received from me, but the gospel that I'm preaching was also received. It's not Paul's gospel. I'm not the author of it. I didn't create it. It wasn't philosophers in a room. It wasn't historians in a college. It wasn't theologians in a seminary. It was God from heaven appearing in Jesus Christ, telling it by divine revelation to his apostles. And after the first 12, minus Judas, Jesus came down a second time to appear and train and teach and reveal and give the gospel of salvation by faith alone to Paul. That's his point. He says this in Galatians. I think I have it in my notes. He says again, no, I don't have it. But he'll make the point in Galatians chapter 1 that he did not receive this gospel from other people. He didn't graduate gospel seminary and get taught all this stuff just, just by people who came up with it. He received it from a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. So as we start going through the gospel, maybe you're not a Christian. And yeah, classic, all beliefs are the same, everybody sort of has an old book that sort of gets handed down and changed with the ages, people come up with all sorts of wacky stuff all over the globe, I'm glad you found something that gives you peace. No, we have the arrogance, which is actually humility, to say that God spoke the gospel, that God wrote the Bible, that man was lost in sin and God revealed through his shining light of his son, Jesus Christ, the gospel. We're not like the Buddhists. We're not like the Muslims. We're not like any other people, not the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. We do not have a man-made gospel. It's been received from heaven. That's Paul's point. It is of first importance. It was received from me because it was received from Jesus by me first. And then he says that Christ. I know what you're thinking. We can't keep stopping every two words and making a point, but we can. The gospel is, first importance, that is received from God, that Christ. There's lots of details we'll go into, but it's all about Jesus. It's not just historical events. We're not just preaching about death and resurrection and consummation and a king. We're preaching Jesus who came, Jesus who lived, Jesus who died. It's about a person it's Him that rose. It's Him that received the kingdom from the Father. And I'm just going through 1 Corinthians 15 now in short form. It's Him that received dominion over all peoples. It's Him that brings the kingdom to a culmination and gives it to the Father. It's Him that gives all glory to the Father. It's Him that re- returns and calls up, up, up us up out of the grave. It's Him that we become like in eternity. It's Him that we go to, not just heaven, Him. It's all about Jesus. We cannot preach the gospel if we're not saying the name, the person, and work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, our God, Savior, Lord, and King. Churches do not get to say they're gospel-centered or they're Christian churches, they're God honoring if they don't preach Jesus. And friends, we don't get to kid ourselves thinking that we are saved by the gospel if we don't have a relationship with the person Jesus. This changes everything you're not saved by what you can affirm you're not saved by doctrinal tests that 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 you pass you're not saved by graduation from any human institution you're not saved by membership in a gospel preaching church you're not saved by owning or memorizing a bible or singing songs or amening a sermon though all of that is good you're saved by jesus that Paul recollects his religious life in Philippians 3 and then says, but I gave it all up for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Do you know him? Does he have a name in your heart? Does, is your name in his heart? Do you know one another? Do you pray to not just heaven, but to Jesus? Do you worship Jesus? Do you live for Jesus? Is your life ordered by a person named Jesus Christ? Is it all religious and formal and disconnected? We are saved by Jesus. The whole gospel centers on this person, the name above every single name. And and the gospel is, number four, it is according to the scriptures. Scriptures here meaning Old Testament, Jewish revelation from God. The gospel is according to the Old Testament. Testament scriptures, which means two things. This is going to be extremely helpful if you can think this way. When he says, according to the scriptures, what he means is that it was first of all prophesied, and then second of all, interpreted by the Old Testament scriptures. When he says Jesus died and Jesus rose according with the scriptures, what he's meaning is they prophesied him, and they're our tool for interpreting what that death was. So, we see that it was in, uh, useful. The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, help us interpret what the death of Christ was. Well, us Westerners, 21st century, we don't just get to read the Gospels, unhitch the Old Testament and come up with what it meant for us. It was a cosmic battle of the spiritual realm. It was, it was Jesus showing his love for us like a beautiful, bloodied Valentine's card. That's what it was. No, it was an Old Testament fulfillment of thousands of prophecies. Jesus believed this. He believed Even before a word of the New Testament was written, he was able to open up the Old Testament and do a Christ-centered Bible study. And he did it. After his resurrection, there was disciples with him who he had somehow hidden his form from. They didn't know it was him. They knew another guy with holes in his hands. And so they were walking along with him on the road to a... They're all uh, 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 horribly dreary and moping and depressed because their saviors died. And Jesus is walking with them. They don't realize. And he says, you guys are so thick. Even I know. I don't know all this other stuff you're talking about. This guy who died, it was a, you know, he plays dumb. Jesus is sort of playing with them. But he says, but even I can tell that the Messiah has to die and rise. You guys don't know that? And he starts, it's, I'll read it. Matthew, uh, sorry, Luke 24, verse 26. It, Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, which is the first five books of the Old Testament were written by Moses. So beginning with Genesis, and then all of the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. When it comes to helpfully interpreting what the death of Christ meant, what the resurrection meant, the constant refrain from the apostles is, go and read the Old Testament, that informs what's happening here. The scripture interprets the scriptures. So it's an interpretive tool, but also the gospel was prophesied. We see this all through. I don't have time to go through them all, but I've got, I'll have got. i cut it down to maybe eight. Eight prophecies that were fulfilled from the Old Testament about Jesus' life and ministry. These are amazing. Isaiah 7 verse, if you can't, if you can't write all these down, they, they, I see some of you writing quick. They'll, they'll be in the study guide if you want to grab it. Then Isaiah seven verse fourteen prophesied seven hundred years in advance that a young virgin girl would conceive. Micah five two and of course that was Mary Jesus' mother. Micah chapter five verse two said that out of Bethlehem the Israelite king would come whose origin was eternity. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the son of God and the son of man. Isaiah nine verse one says that Galilee would be privileged to see a great light in the time of the Messiah. And it was Galilee that saw the majority of the miracles and teaching ministry of Jesus. That was prophesied. Malachi 3 verse 1 says that God was going to send his Messiah to the second temple, which was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70, meaning that God put a historical time stamp on it. The Messiah had to have come by AD 70. Otherwise, God's prophecies are not able... To be fulfilled, and of course Jesus did. He went and stood in that temple itself. Psalm forty-one, verse nine, says uh, uh, talks about a close friend who shares his meals with me will betray me, and that's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Who Judas, as Jesus shares a meal with him, he's planning how he will go and make some money to betray Jesus. Psalm. 22 verse 16 says that the, the Holy One will be dying with pierced hands and pierced feet. And that uh, the design of the crucifixion was not even invented for a few hundred years. Psalm verse 16 verse 9 says that the Holy One of God, the Messiah, will die but not rot in the grave. Something will happen before the rotting takes place. That was the resurrection of Jesus. And of course... Isaiah 42 verse 6 says that the Messiah would take his light to the nations and salvation will reach all of the earth. This is, of course, foreshadowing the great commission that the apostles would go out and proclaim. Eight points at least, hundreds otherwise, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was completely prophesied and confirmed of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. And then we see... So we've seen that the gospel is of first importance, that it was received from God to mankind, that Christ—that it is all about Jesus Christ, that it is according to the scriptures, and now we see that Jesus died for our sins. This is the message. This is the content of the gospel that Paul says here. Christ died for our sins. And the Old Testament paints pictures and helps us interpret what that means through Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement or the Passover in Exodus chapter 12 or Isaac who would go and be the son dying, uh, 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 the son of promise who was dying. All of these ways of foreshadowing was showing us that when Jesus died for our sins, it means that he took our legal guilt, bore its penalty and died under the wrath of God That's what it means, Christ died for our sins. This is called penal substitutionary atonement. Remember it and get it tattooed on your chest or arm or feet or forehead if you need to remember it. Penal substitutionary atonement. Many people will look at this and say, look, enough of all of this wrath of God stuff. It's not in Paul's most rudimentary foundational summary of the gospel. Look, where's the wrath of God here? Christ died for our sins. What that means is, you know, like I got a piece of pizza for you. For just means for your benefit. Jesus died for us. There's no substitution, no wrath of God. It's not there. And friends, it's right there. The entirety of Old Testament penal substitution is right there in that text in the word for. That Greek word huper is the word that means on behalf of. It can sometimes mean, like in Romans 5 verse 2, for the benefit of, as in Jesus died for the ungodly. He died for the benefit of the ungodly, but not here, not in this text, because Jesus cannot die for the benefit of sins. He died for the benefit of sinners. But in this context, it absolutely, unquestionably means that he died on behalf of our sins, The death penalty is something that is penal and legal and guilt deserving, uh, 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 earning in the Old Testament. Death is the death penalty. For is substitutionary language that Jesus went for us to the cross, and that his dying was that penalty we deserved to pay because our sins, as as Isaiah 53 says, were carried by him. It was imputed to him. Isaiah 53 says. So right there in Paul's most foundational summary of the gospel, Christ died as a penalty, substitution, atonement-bringing savior for our sins. That's the heart of the gospel. And on the back of that, he then says, which of course was according to the scriptures, that he paid it all. According to the scriptures, we see this promised in Genesis 3, verse 15. The very beginning of the Old Testament, when God promised Satan that he will send a human to crush the head of that snake, but that snake would bruise that man who was coming, was the crucifixion foreshadowed, promised. And then we see it typified in Genesis 22 when Isaac is taken by Abraham up to the mountain so that he can kill his son of inheritance, this miraculously born son, kill him so that sin can be atoned for. And, and God says, no, God will provide. The angel comes and cries out, don't kill him. God will provide the lamb. Jesus is that lamb who is dying as a substitute, the son of miraculous birth given. Or Daniel 9, verse 24, that says that the Messiah will come, finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in an everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy Jesus died for our sins, for your sins, according to what the Old Testament said. Your guilt is taken and every last drop of it is paid for. It's good news. And then he says that he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And this is going to be our last point right here. Number six, what is the gospel? It is that Jesus was buried and was raised on the third day. He includes being buried here to confirm both the reality of resurrection and the reality of death. You don't bury a guy who's almost dead. And there's all sorts of theories out there, of course. We will get into this next week. He didn't really die, sort of fainted. Yeah, then they wrapped his mouth up and his whole body up in loincloths and left him there in a hole in the ground in the cold for two nights. If he wasn't dead, he's dead now. He, he was buried because he was really dead. And being buried means that a resurrection is verifiable. The guy was buried. He says he's alive. Let's go to the burial site. Paul's saying that. He's truly buried because he was really dead. And he rose, which was the undoing of the burial. And he says here, on, the, on accordance with the scriptures on the third day. And I, I love this theme in scripture. Maybe it's not really noticed very often, but this theme in Scripture of the third day hope is common. First of all, what we see later in 1 Corinthians 15 is this speaking of a first fruit. Christ is the fruit and we are all trees after his likeness. We're fruit that has come out of the seed that's in him. And we'll get to that when we get there in the text. What third day might Paul be referring to when he's talking about Jesus could possibly be the third day of Genesis chapter 1, when it says in Genesis chapter 1 that there will be fruit being born according to its kind and its seed will be within it for more fruit later. Is that what he's talking about? He, he was raised on the third day like the third day, which was the fruit which was raised and producing eternal life and, and saved sinners after its kind. Maybe there's that theme, but there's other third day deliverance texts like we just said with Isaac and Abraham. Abraham was told go and kill your son and for three days he was mellow over this whole scenario until on the third day he saw the place that he would die and receive, that he would kill his son. But instead Hebrews says that he received his son as it were back from death. He had so allocated Isaac to death that to hear the news that he didn't have to kill him was like a resurrection. The place of death and resurrection the same hill Jesus would die on was seen by Abraham on the third day. Or Genesis 42, verse 17. The the brothers of Joseph who had thought that they had killed him, they were waiting in prison to see whether the king would kill them. The king was secretly their brother who they thought they killed. And on the third day, it says their hopes came back because the king came and told them they could go. On the third day, Joseph arrived to them. Exodus 19 maybe was, the, was this promise that the, the, uh, the, uh, the God would um, meet with his people and they came and they waited at the bottom of the mountain and on the third day God came to them. Maybe it was that. Maybe on the thir- another third day theme that he was referring to was Joshua 3 verse 2 when, when God would bring the ark, the presence of God through the people and they would await and on the third day God appeared to them in that Maybe he's referring to Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 when he was swallowed by the fish, taken down into the bellies of the earth and he prayed and he wanted to be freed and on the third day he was spat out alive to be a missionary of the gospel. Maybe it was that. Maybe the third day spoken about is, is prophesied by Hosea chapter 6 verse 2 when God's saying, "'I'm going to wound my people "'and hurt them for their sins.'" but it will not be forever. Come together and pray, and on the third day I will raise you up. Maybe it's that. Third day is a big theme of deliverance in the Old Testament, and according to the Scriptures, Jesus, on the third day, was raised. And the the, the resurrection of Jesus was prophesied in, in shadowy ways in Psalm 16. We referenced this before, which says, My flesh dwells secure. God, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You will not let your Messiah see corruption. Or Psalm 56 verse 13. It says, You, God, have delivered my soul from death so that I may walk before the Lord in the light of life. All of this comes to mean As the greatest news that any corner of the globe has ever heard echoing through its ears is that there is good news for sinners from heaven. It has been long awaited by people living and dying in darkness. It has been long grasped at by those who want and wish to be saved from the dreariness of sin, death and hell. It has been long awaited by the Jews who were promised and prophesied this and finally in the person of Jesus, all of our greatest hopes and greatest needs and glorious promises of God have come to culmination. Jesus came. He lived the perfect life we could never have lived as God in flesh among us. He went before Jesus, with a, uh, before the Father, with a righteousness of his own and then took and was clothed in our sin. That he then went and paid the penalty that we should have so that he could eradicate any payment or debt that we still had to go. And the proof was that in his resurrection, the whole world could hear. Like the dawn breaking of a new day, the Messiah did it. The payment was accepted. Sinners can be made righteous. Eternal life can come to light in us through Jesus that's what Paul is going to expound and outright explode about in the coming uh, verses of this chapter. And that is what we, as a church, must be passionate about. But first, you have to believe it yourself for salvation. I know I keep saying this. Jesus kept saying this. Paul kept on saying this. Have you repented of your sins, turned away from them, grasped onto Jesus alone who is able, absolutely, Able to save you with a word. Simply believe and he justifies you, adopts you, saves you through the gospel. Have you believed? And if not, make today the day. We don't know whether we live tomorrow. Even if we do, you are missing out without Jesus as Lord and Savior. The gospel will be our theme. The gospel is our joy. So can you bow with me and pray as we reflect and thank God for the gospel. Father God, there is no greater news than to know that Jesus is alive. And there's simply no better news for sinners to know that he is, he is one who is alive, but he was dead for sinners. That he's a friend of sinners. That he's a savior of sinners. That he's a, he's a justifier of sinners. Oh, the Bible is just full of promises for sinners. God, I pray that the reality of the resurrection, that he has been made alive Completed his work for salvation that that would give hope to anyone here tonight who lives in their sin who rejects you and repels your word and walks away from what you would say to them lord would you call them home to you this evening would you bring them conversion would you change their life and change their nature so that they can become christians who trust follow and believe in jesus and for those of us lord who have long rejoiced in this gospel. Would you give us an indefatigable zeal to see this gospel known and to give you glory for the amazing work you have done through Jesus Christ. Because he is alive, because he is praying for us, because he is our mediator and savior, this very moment we pray in his name, which cannot fail. And everybody said, amen.